and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. On today's show, we wanted to talk to a Mariner. We wanted to talk to one who is impactful on defense. So that's not Julio Rodriguez. It's not Ty France. We got Cal Raleigh, their starting catcher. Then our VP of Baseball, former Major League player and exec Bobby Scales, joined us to talk catching and some of the best catchers that he played with and against. The variety of names he gave us was great. We also talked White Sox, a team that he thinks should go for it at the trade deadline. All right, let's get to it. Mariners catcher Cal Raleigh joins us. He's one of a bunch of catchers behind Jose Trevino for the Major League lead in defensive run saves. And despite a low batting average, his home run hitting and doubles hitting has made him a positive value offensive player this season. And we wanted to talk to a Mariners player, given how the team recently got into the playoff hunt. Cal, how you doing? Doing well. How are you? We're good. And we want to talk about origin story first and essentially how you became a catcher, how you got into becoming as good of a defensive player as you did. Now, your dad was a college coach. Your uncle played and managed in the minors. So I'm curious, how did defense kind of originate for you? I guess I was introduced to catching about, uh, I guess when I was about nine, 10 years old. Didn't exclusively do it until I got to college, though. I was always split in time between catcher and third base especially once I kind of got older through high school and I really enjoyed third base a lot and there was a chance I was going to play third in college but ended up you know changing plans and uh, ended up exclusively catching and ever since my freshman year it's all done. What did your dad and your your family teach you about playing D? Yeah my dad was a catcher so um, he's the one introduced me to it and uh, you know he basically taught me everything I know if it wasn't for him I wouldn't be catching you know, he's he taught me, you know, all from the beginning, the blocking, the receiving, the throwing, and all that good stuff. So, Do you have a favorite defensive play that you made as a kid, whether it was at third base or behind the plate? Anytime I could feel the bunt, I really enjoyed that. I love doing anything with the bare hand. So, you know, making a play on the run barehanded, whether it be a third or catcher, was kind of my favorite play. Were you like an Arenado type with the bare hand play? I don't know if I was like that, <laughs> but... Maybe in my head, I thought I was. So. Okay, but but it's something that you that you kind of established in your game. Got it. So you played for Mike Martin at Florida State. You went to Florida State, where there is a pretty good lineage of major league catchers headed by Buster Posey. When Buster won his gold glove, I, I think I asked him about catching there, and he went on a very long monologue about what the coaching staff at Florida State taught him. And I'm curious, how did Coach Martin and the other coaches there influence how you played? You know, when I got there, like I said, I'd never really only caught before in my life. So I had some things to learn as far as, you know, learning about pitching staff and things of that nature. And, you know, not bringing your your at-bats onto the field. And everybody's looking towards you as far as, you know, being a leader on the field. So I have a lot of credit to give to him, Coach Martin. We call him Levin, but he taught me a lot of things. And, you know, he always had a trust in me, too, which I really appreciate. You know, looking back, so uh, he definitely helped me out a lot. Third round pick out of Florida State, uh, made the majors, uh, was on the Mariners uh, last season. What was your welcome to the majors kind of moment? I don't know, that very first game when we were playing, when I got called up, I guess uh second batter of the game was Shohei Otani. It was kind of cool to see him in the box and didn't realize how big he was when he stepped in. You know, first pitch of the game, he uh, hit a double down line. That was a pretty cool moment. So your numbers, your all-around play has been considerably better year two versus year one. What's the biggest difference for you in terms of comfort level? Yeah, I think it just takes time. You see, you know, not a lot of guys come come into the league right away and make 
a super big impact. You know, I say that, and we're seeing you know Julio Rodriguez do do what he does. He's he's amazing. Obviously, impacting the game at such a high level and doing so well. But you know, it just took some time for me to learn the staff and you know get comfortable and learn things on the fly. And um, it's getting there. It's not all the way there yet. I'm still learning. Still trying to get better. And you know, each day I'm trying to take something and you know apply it. Let's uh, let's go through some statistical props here. So when you catch, team's ERA is about 3.2. Other catchers on your team catch, it's closer to 4. You also have the best K to walk on the staff, 3.4 to 1. That's way over the major league average. Major league average K to walk is about 2.7 to 1. And Scott Service said a lot of nice things about your defense in a radio interview a month ago. One of the things he cited, he said, you are a creative game caller. And I'm curious if you can give us an example of a time that you had to get creative in your approach behind the plate. Yeah. Sometimes we have a game plan as far as what we do with pitchers and, you know, what we're going into the game with. And, you know, sometimes, as you know, people, uh, they might not have a pitch that day or something might not be working or, you know, hitters are showing you something different and uh, you kind of got to pivot, you know, lean on something else. So, uh, you know, there's been multiple times where you have to change up what you're doing or whether it might be, like I said, it might be a hitter's approach, might be the umpire back there giving you a little more off the plate than usual or maybe being a little tired than usual. You know, it could be a lot of things. could be the pitcher not having a pitch that they're having a little better or something than he usually has. So it honestly happens probably more often than not because, you know, for things to go perfect in a game is uh, not very common. I actually was watching some video right before we talked. Won't indict the player that it was, but I saw an at bat, a game ending at bat, actually, where you set a high target, like a high fastball was coming. And then, at, like, as the pitcher kind of went into his motion, you changed and you went lower and you, you essentially faked out the hitter and you got a called strike three to end the game. And I'm curious about, you said that, you know, sometimes you got, you got to watch the hitter. I'm curious about your attentiveness to hitters and what you, what you're watching when you watch them. Some guys, some teams are uh, the good ones, especially, you know, they're always trying to get any kind of advantage or whether it be catcher setups or targets, um, anything along that nature. So we get a, you know, certain teams, if you set up too early and give a high target, it kind of gives it away because you don't want to throw, obviously, a slider or a curveball, change up, anything off speed really up. So, you know, it tells the other team that you're going to throw a fastball. So sometimes with guys on second or guys on base where we might think, oh, they might be relaying something or they could maybe give a little sign to give them, might be a heater. I switch it up just every once in a while to keep people honest. That way they're not always looking in and trying to get an advantage clearly worked in that instance. So what is your approach to pitch framing? I've seen some guys we've talked to, like Austin Hedges is a tap the ground kind of guy. Max Stassi is more of the still hand kind of guy. What's your approach with it? Honestly, I think I tapped the ground, I believe. When I got into minor leagues, it's really when we started really focusing on framing. Obviously, framing was always a big part of my game and trying to do the best I could, but really, really starting to focus on when I got to minor leagues. I like to get into a rhythm. Honestly, I can't. I know some guys like to stay as still as possible, but I can't get into a rhythm that way, and I kind of get stuck, and I'll end up losing some strikes or not catching the ball as well if I'm dead still like that. So my big approach is just trying to stay loose and trying to uh, obviously let the ball travel as deep as I can, and then you know last second making a good move towards the ball and giving the umpire you know best viewpoint of it. 
One thing that we've noticed is that particularly on pitches that are at the top of the strike zone, you rate among the better catchers in the majors. Now, your most used relievers, something distinct about the Mariners, is that most used relievers on the team, with the exception of Castillo, all have this great strikeout to walk. Seawold's 5-1, to one, Murphy and Munoz are 6-1, to one, Swanson's 7-1. to one. When you look at their stuff, what do you see? They're doing a great job this year. You know, our whole staff is from starters to relievers. And, you know, that's something we preach in our organization. Obviously, getting ahead in the cow and not giving giving up free bases. You know, free bases kill teams, whether it's walks or errors or whatever it might be. So they do a great job of pounding the zone, getting ahead, and then obviously expanding when they need to. So, uh, you know, we keep it pretty simple around here. You know, get ahead, use your best stuff, and uh, go right out of the hitters. Paul Seawald is someone who considerably changed the way that he pitches. Now, you weren't necessarily, well, I guess you were there for the start of it last year. What does a fastball from him look like? Yeah, he just has that. It's kind of weird. You know, he gets way down. He kind of crouches down in the setup, and he's not, he doesn't throw the hardest, but he has that, that weird kind of angle. And, you know, that angle you don't see every day. You know, you see normal pitchers that come, and they throw from the normal release point. You know, he's throwing from over the top, but he's coming from way down low. So it really gets on hitters, and I think people call it vertical approach angle. He really gets down low, and that ball really rides up on you last second. Is is there anything tricky about trying to catch him? No, there is one. He does like – he likes his catchers on two feet, so uh, that is the one weird thing. He doesn't like the one knee down, so we have to go on two for him. He likes high targets. He's certainly been an incredibly effective pitcher the last couple of years. What about a, a Logan Gilbert pitch, fastball or otherwise? It's a very heavy fastball. He gets great extension. You know, obviously it's one of the better fastballs in the game, especially when he's bumping up there in the high 90s. It's a lot of fun to catch. He has a lot of good stuff, and you've seen this year he's had a, been having a great year. He's kind of in that same boat, though. You know, he's getting ahead of hitters, attacking, and then, you know, expanding when he has to. You know, that fastball is a lot of fun to catch when it's when it's on that day. What's a specific moment from this season from a catching perspective that you are that you were particularly proud of? One that sticks out in my head was our last game. We were playing, we were playing the Mets in New York. We got the bases loaded. We were up with one, no outs. You know, fans were going crazy. And we brought in Diego Castillo. He had been scuffing a little bit of that time. Just kind of been a, you know, one or two bad outings. And we brought him in and he came down and, he struck out the side, I believe, or maybe got a pop up or something. But it was a crazy game. It won us a series, won us a game, obviously. But uh, you know, it got him back on track. That was a lot of fun to catch. Wasn't Pete Alonso the last batter of that one? Yeah, it was. It was like a, I'm pretty sure it was like a two-two or three-two check swing. He definitely went around. I touched home, and it was a really cool moment. So, all right, walk us through if you whatever you can remember about that specific at bat. Because if I remember right, that was a pretty long at bat too. It was a memorable one. You got this amazing win out of it. Is there anything that you remember ab- about that it, from a catching perspective and how you attack, like how you attack when Pete Alonso's up with the bases loaded in a one-run game in the bottom of the ninth? That was obviously you know a tense moment. You know we went out there talked about it, what we want to do, how we want to attack them. And I remember uh, Diego Slider really being on that day. And like I said, he hadn't been, he had about one or two bad outings before that. So, uh, you know, obviously it's hard when things aren't going right or going your way. So for him to come out there and to throw like that was really impressive. I just remember, you know, him, uh, you know, not giving in to Pete, not, you know, obviously he got ahead and then, um, you know, not giving in, giving him a pitch he can drive and he, uh, he executed his pitches and it's, it's not easy when, 
you know, the base is low like that. And he, uh, he executed really well. You homered in that game, by the way. And I, I do just to kind of close here, I do want to ask you like two things on your, your hitting. Your hitting is in a much better place this season than it particularly than it was last season and both earlier this season as well. What got you into a better place? I just think, you know, really simplifying it, not trying to do too much, you know, kind of breaking the game down, you know, one pitch at a time and, you know, reading the game, just doing what the game asks of you, uh, whether it's, you know, move a runner, hit a fly ball, get a guy in, stuff like that, choking up with two strikes, just little things that are super simple that kind of get lost in today's game, I think, because, you know, everybody's, you know, worried about driving in runs or launching balls and we've all found fallen uh, guilty to that so just choking up a little bit keeping it simple just trying to get on base and trying to put together good at bats really so consciously choking up is that something that you weren't doing before not really i wasn't really choking up i wouldn't say that was the make or break for me per se but just you know just trying to have good at bats and trying to put the bat to ball just really simple and you know i know i'm a bigger guy so i I know i can hit the ball a long way and but you don't always have to hit the ball super far even 50 feet over the fence. So just making good contact and letting the ball do the work from there. So last question here, and you mentioned hitting the ball far, and we just saw what Julio Rodriguez did in the home run derby. And I watched, I went back and watched your home runs, and I feel like you have a swing that would be really good in the home run derby. And especially because your hard hit numbers are all really good this season. How would you do in a home run derby? I was in one in the minor leagues in high A in 2019. I didn't. I got bumped the first round, but (laughs) (laughs) I don't know which side of the plate I would go from. I don't know if I go right or left. I think I'll need to lower my. Depending on the format, I have to lower the lower the launch there because you know the high hit balls are the ones that take longer to go out. So I'd have to try to hit more line drives. I think I could. I think it'd be fun to do. I think it'd be something obviously that would be really cool to do. And just to close, what's the most impressive thing you've seen from Julio Rodriguez this year? The guy's amazing. It's so fun to watch him play. And I think the biggest thing is just whether he has a bad game or even early on in the year when he was going through a little rough patch. You know, I say rough patch, but I mean, it's it's not easy when you first come to the league and have to do it. But he was, his energy, he just kept his energy up. He was always smiling, always having fun. I mean, a guy could strike out four times in a game, get up, fit that bat. And, you know, you wouldn't, you would never know if he, that he struck out four times. So, that kind of energy and that kind of infectious smile is uh it's fun to be around every day and you know it affects everyone around the clubhouse nice cal raleigh thank you for taking the time to join us best of luck the rest of the season yeah thanks for having me on our vp of baseball bobby scales joins us and we just talked to cal raleigh catcher for the seattle mariners had a couple of good days since talking to us behind the plate we talked to him mostly about his defensive play because he's among the leaders in defensive runs saved for a catcher this season and i wanted to ask you as someone who played for a long time both major leagues and minor leagues you've got some names on your best defensive catcher list some that we've heard of and then some that we might not have yeah cal i'm, I'm sure i don't know him i I don't know Cal Rowley at all, but uh, certainly he's getting some good instruction from a longtime major league catcher up there. My former boss in Los Angeles, Scott Service, Scott, he was, you know, he was in a in a in a suit when I worked for him, but uh, he was always really invested in what was happening in player development and obviously behind, in the catching position as well. So uh, shout to those guys up there doing a great job with him and Cal himself. Yeah, I I was fortunate. I played with and against a lot of good catchers, and and that's one of those positions where it really stands out. It really stands out because of how invested and how involved that a catcher is in the game. 140 pitches a night, 
140 plus as the average major league amount of pitches thrown in the major league game. So you're in, involved in every last one of them. So there's a couple guys and they stand out for a diff- for different reasons. Number one, I played with a guy, a very modest major league career. I think it was only like eight at bats or something of that nature, but Yamid Hot. So Yamid is from Cartagena, Colombia. His mother's Colombian. I believe his father is of Middle Eastern descent. I'm not sure where, so I don't want to. I don't want to say where, but he was Middle Eastern descent. Thus, the name Yamid Had, for that matter, as well. But he was about six foot four. I, I give him when he probably walked around two twenty five when he played. Very just wiry, lanky, strong. He looked like a point guard in the NBA. That was kind of the way he looked. But he was so athletic in a small space for a large man behind the plate. He had this catching stance. Where I swear his feet were like, I mean, his his knees were like four feet apart and he had these massive hands and he just kind of presented this target and he, his hands were so soft. He could make any ball that was remotely close look like a strike with these very small, subtle movements. It was a very different style of catching then, even though it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't, they weren't talking about the big movements from down to up like they are now. They were taught, it was more very subtle movements kind of sway with your body, which they don't teach anymore, which is very, which is interesting. But the bottom line is this guy could flat out catch. He was the kind of catcher that, now I, I never pitched, right? But he was the kind of catcher that just made you feel good. Even when you're playing second base or third base or shortstop, you just felt like he's putting down the right fingers. Everything's under control. If you throw it in the dirt, he's going to block it. And and he also had this no look pick the first. that was amazing. <laughs> I, I swear to you. No look to pick the first. He and he'd set a guy up too. So he'd throw it back, throw it back to the pitcher, throw it back to the pitcher, and look dead at the pitcher and throw it right to first base and catch the guy walking back to first base. We got we got one person a month doing that. It was unbelievable. They called him La Mafia because he had this big bushy hair and he just he just you know he he could do this voice where he sounded like a gangster. It was pretty funny. So Yamid Had La Mafia was one guy. The second guy that I played with that was amazing. This was a little bit later in my career. I played with a couple, several actually. The best arm I ever played with, Humberto Quintero. Humberto Quintero will throw you out from the parking lot. Just just stand on first base, stand on second base, don't move, because it is going to be detrimental to your health and to your baseball team because he will pick you off. And we, as fielders, we had to, he had to pay attention as well because he would throw at any time, any count, any time, any pitch, didn't matter. He would throw, pick behind runners and, and all of these kinds of things too. So Q was a guy. And then one of the other guys I want, I want to mention is Miguel Olivo played against him in 2002, had a long big league career. You know, I think White Sox, Mariners, a couple of the clubs finished with the, the Giants, if I'm not mistaken. But this is 2002. I'm in my first year in double A in Mobile, Alabama with the Padres. He's in Birmingham with the Wally Backman led Birmingham Barons. And they had a great team that year. They ended up winning the Southern League, Aaron Miles, a number of other guys off that team. But Miguel was unbelievable. First of all, he was built like an NFL tailback. He was probably about 5'10", 5'11", probably pl- played at about 205, 210 pounds, diesel, just rock solid, really smart player, had a little nasty streak in him too. But boy, I've never seen a guy that size, that thick, that strong, be so athletic in small spaces, blocked absolutely everything. And then also too, the thing that struck me about him that year is he stole 29 bags. He stole 29 bases from the catching position. I remember one night I'm playing third base and he drops a, I, I'm playing back because he had just hit a rocket past me the at bat before. He drops a bunt, bunt base hit down the third baseline, gets on first, first pitch, steals second, second, two pitches after that, steals third. I was like, this guy's amazing. Unbelievable. And, and like I said, he ended up going on to have a, a really strong major league career. So, and later in my career, probably I played with Coy Hill, really good catcher, really good receiver, 
took pride, took a lot of pride in, in, in leading his staff. That was probably the thing that stuck out most about Coy is that every single night he took such pride in leading his staff and leading and getting these pitchers to, through the 27 outs that are required to, 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 to finish a baseball game. So a different group of guys and they did it in different ways, but those are probably some of the best guys that I played with and against and I'm missing people and I'm going to get, I'm going to get beat up for it. So I'll, I'll deal with that. I like that you went with guys that aren't necessarily the Busters or the Yachty or Molinas, and I know you like Yachty too. One of the things that I noticed as you were talking, I was looking each of these guys up, and each of them is coaching or has coached mm -hmm. uh, in some respect following their careers. Umberto Quintero, Miguel Olivo, both coaching catching to like high school scholastic students like private lessons for academies type of thing quite hill coached minor league baseball kind of neat he did. Uh, that everyone's got some sort of connection to giving back in some way all right let's focus current mlb and i know that the topic you wanted to talk about this week was the al central which is a tight race a three-team race which is unusual and the only real three-team race in baseball this year with the twins the, the guardians and the white Sox. white Sox three games out at the time that we're doing this day before this airs your thoughts in particular on them well, I just that that division is so interesting to me for so many reasons. I just look at and I don't and I'll stay with I mean, obviously the twins are playing great baseball. Rocco's got those guys playing great. I'll stay with the Guardians and the White Sox for a couple of reasons. Number one, I just look at that White Sox roster and you watch them play. That team is so athletic and dynamic and fun to watch play. If they can stay on the field, I love their chances. I mean, they've got some pitching. Headlined by Dylan Cease, you know, like myself, Milton High School alumni graduate here in Milton, Georgia. So we'll throw that shout out to, to the empire out there. But no, in, in all seriousness, he's been fantastic this year. They're going to get Robert back in, in the foreseeable future in the next few days. Apparently, he's played some and doing more baseball activity. He'll be back soon. If they can keep guys on the field, Tim Anderson is being Tim, Tim Anderson, you know, with the, with the bat for sure. It's tough for me to see to envision a scenario where they're not in the mix all the way to the end to getting that wild card spot. Now, I will say this. The reason the Guardians are interesting to me is because, one, they have one of the best players in the sport who we don't celebrate, and he should be getting all his flowers and way more love because the dude is unbelievable. I mean, switch it, both sides of the plate. Jose Ramirez. I, yeah, uh, Yes, Jose Ramirez. Uh, High-level defense, and, and, and his teammates love him. But on top of that, too, I had the pleasure and honor and the privilege to, be, to share a clubhouse with Terry Francona for just a spring training, but he treated me like I had 10 years in the big leagues uh, because that's who he is. And he is, I think he's, if not the best, one of the best in all of major professional sport at getting the most out of his guys. And he will go to the wall and go to the bat for his guys. And in turn, they give back more than they probably could because they know that that guy believes in them. And, and, and Tito is, Tito is an unbelievable human. He's an unbelievable manager. And just when you talk about just getting the best out of a player, out of a human, he's one of the best in the business at doing so. So that's not a shot to anybody else, but he's that good, right? So I just the the dynamics between those two. If 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 you if we're going on raw baseball, just ability and just the 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 raw physical part of it, that White Sox team for me just jumps off the page in every way, shape, or form. 
And the White Sox should get better defensively when they bring Robert back. Defense has been a little bit of an issue for them. Two yep. teams in the National League that we wanted to just touch on, because we're thinking in terms of like trade deadline, go for it, don't mm-hmm. go for it. You would say go for it strong if you're the White Sox, as as you were saying. This, this is a good shot for them. In the National League, there's two teams in kind of contrasting spots, neither of which is a good defensive team both of which have given away some games this year, the Phillies and Giants, your takes on them. Well, the Phillies, obviously, since they fired Girardi, they've made they've made somewhat of a, a of a surge, and they're right in the mix. I mean, they're not going to win that division. Either the Mets or the Braves are going to win that division, but they still have a tremendous opportunity to get to the postseason, and they're right there, obviously. And then the Giants are an inter- a very interesting, interesting case. Just the age on that team, they're not good defensively. But they're still there. So if you're their front office, do you do we is it is it in the next few days? And this is what's interesting about the trade deadline and where it is. Do we do we blow it up and get what we can get? Is anybody interested in what we have outside of Rondon? You know, those are those are questions that you all have to be answered. And it's a very they're in a very precarious situation. Or do we make this final push with the the veterans such as Belt, such as Brandon Crawford and say, hey, this is our last one. This is what we're going to do. And if it doesn't work out, I don't know the contract status of those guys. I don't know their system as probably as intimately as I should, but it's just, they're just in a very precarious situation with where they are. And again, in contrast to the White Sox, the White Sox come out of the break. They've won three straight, playing much better baseball right now. The Giants have lost six straight, all three after the break. It's been a little bit of a struggle for them. So two teams in similar situations, they've gotten there in, 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 in two different ways, it'll be interesting what it looks like down the stretch. So just to close, you've been a part of a number of July 31st, a number of right days right before the trade deadline. What's the thing about that day that is particularly interesting to you, but that people might not know? The amount of stuff that actually doesn't get done. And I, I'll say it like this. You will not hear from anybody in the industry for about two weeks before the trade deadline for the simple fact that there are there's a hundred trades on the on the on the table right now. There are analysts working on things. There are medical directors looking at MRIs of this, that, and the other. So if a hundred trades come in, a hundred propositions come in, 50 of them get vetted, 20 of them get vetted deeply, and you might get one done across, you might get one across the line. These things happen and, and some of them happen faster than others, but um but it's, and, and I'll say this, especially now with the anatomy of what a trade looks like now versus what it looked like 20 years ago, because you don't necessarily see the one for one player swap anymore. It's very difficult to execute one of those. But what you'll see is you'll see one big, big league player for like five minor leaguers. And there's there's packages at each tier of the minor leagues. You can have this guy, but you can't have this guy. If you take this guy, then it opens up this level of t- this tier of talent behind them, so on and so forth. So these things, these these deals take a, a lot longer and they are vetted way deeper. So I, I think the thing that the casual fan would not understand is just how long these things take to get done and how deep the vetting process is and just how many of them are proposed before anything really does happen. August 2nd, the trade deadline this year was pushed back a couple of days because of the delayed start to the regular season. Bobby Scales, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mark. And that wraps up this episode. For Cal Raleigh, Bobby Scales, and our producer Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. You can follow us on Twitter at SIS underscore baseball and check out our work at sportsinfosolutions.com. Thank you for listening to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, 
email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 